The reading this morning comes from Acts 4:32 through 5, uh, 17. Thank you, because I'm like, oh, I better know where I'm reading to. Yeah, or I could keep going. <laughs> All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons around them, among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. May God add his blessing to this reading of his holy word. Well, before we jump into the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I'm going to give us something to contrast it with. Uh, Psalm 51 that I read for the call to worship 
is the psalm that David wrote um, purportedly after the apex of his kingship and the most disastrous sin that would happen in his life. And he just was overcome with the need to cry out in repentance. And that story, if you're familiar with any of the Old Testament stories, is a well-known one. It's the story of David and Bathsheba. So, what happened? David had prayed the psalm after he had stolen Bathsheba, his general Uriah's wife, after seeing her bathing and summoned her, sleeping with her and covering up his scandal by first trying to get Uriah to sleep with Bathsheba shortly thereafter. So no one would know whose child it was. But then Uriah in his virtue wouldn't do that because he was concerned with protecting the Ark of the Covenant, God's very presence as it was in danger on the front lines of the enemy. So David sends Uriah to the front lines of the battle where he arranges for his troops to abandon Uriah to his death and Uriah dies in battle. And then David continues to just live his life, do his thing, make his judgments. And the prophet Nathan comes before him and tells him a cautionary tale. And in this tale, David makes a judgment and he says, who would you punish? And David goes, of course I would punish this person who stole all of these things that were his. And Nathan goes, that's you. And it convicted David deep into his heart. And he cried out in repentance for God's forgiveness once he was made aware of his sin. But still, if you read 2 Samuel, this is the arch. This is the top of David's the good deeds and the fortune that's going to come to David. From here, it's all topples downhill. The nation is prophesied that it will be made aware of his sin. And coming misfortune will come to the kingdom. David's son from Bathsheba dies, even though he is fasting and praying and hoping it won't be. And David understands the great horizontal effect of sin. That when we sin, it has consequences. Even when there is spiritual forgiveness and pardon, there is still consequences. We know this. We know this about sin. That David could not undo the sin that had killed Uriah, where he had left Uriah for dead, had essentially murdered him, conspired to, and arranged for the murder of Uriah. He can't undo that. He can't undo the loss for Bathsheba of her son. There are just things that he can't undo, but he asks God for repentance, and he says, purge me. Then I will teach other transgressors, other sinners, your ways. I promise to you, God, that I will teach other people about your grace and your goodness, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips and my mouth, and they will declare your praise. For you want a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Nothing we can do saves us from sin. No big donor check matters. No correctly worded prayer matters. Only something we can be matters. Only a way that we can be, a posture that we can have, 
a brokenness before our own sin, completely undone by our absolute inability to save ourselves. David today would be the Me Too toxic male leader on the front page of the Times or Fox News or CNN in a suit, escorted out of some concrete building into a bunch of cars with lawyers at his side, found guilty of sexual abuse, conspiracy, and murder. Defamed before man and before God. Previously on this ascent to celebrity fame and admiration, and so quickly does he fall. We know David's story, we see it practically every week. And God allows this ruin to come across David's life. But it's every understanding that we have from David's repentant heart that God is a forgiving God who is forgiving David. This is repentance. Your sin is written down. It's written down. It's done. But now you are the Lord's and it's up to him whether he will forgive you or not. That's the mercy that we sit in under a holy creator God. Thank God he's a good God. The kids are learning upstairs, Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and overflowing with loyal love and faithfulness. This is a part that I don't think we're having them learn upstairs right now. It's the next part of the verse. Keeping loyal love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But he by no means leaves the guilty unpunished, responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with children and children's children, the third and fourth generation. That means that God forgives on a soul level, on a spiritual level, but there is a stain left by sin and we know it all too well. It's left on our lives, it's, loved, it's left on the lives of those we love, it's left on the surface of our planet, it's left in our memories and in our bodies, we have signs of it and scars. It's left in mental destruction from drugs and alcohol, it's, it's left from trauma. There are real consequences for real sin, that's reality. But it doesn't mean that God wants that. It means because God has given us the will to choose, to love, to be human. His plan works in spite of our failures. He is calling us to redemption even amidst our sin. Now, why do I bring all of this up? I bring this up because today's story in Acts of Ananias and Sapphira is much easier to navigate if we can set up the egregious sin of David, which we understand is forgiven because of his repentance. Far worse by every metric we could use than the sin of Ananias and Sapphira. Far worse. We know that in our heart. And it's forgiven. But now we look at the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which is pretty easy to follow. Let me recap it for us so we can get a few of the pieces that may not be clear from the first reading of the text. Ananias and Sapphira have sold a piece of property, but before doing so, they have promised the full sale of whatever the land sold for, okay? Into the property of the church. It's pledged. They say, oh, you have this land. We're giving this land to you. Now we're going to go take care of it and sell it, and the proceeds will go to you. 
Not a portion, the whole sale. Now, we can, we can guess at what happened. Perhaps, perhaps they, they quoted an amount, right, of what they thought it would sell for. They had an idea in their head. And they go, hey, it's gonna go for, we think it's gonna go for 400,000, right? So that's, that's all yours at the church. We want you to have that. Whatever justification they use, now the rates are up or whatever, it sells for 450, whatever. Maybe they sell it and they go, well, we didn't tell them the figure and actually, man, we need a break. Cruise would be great. Like, we just, we just need to get out, man. We're stressed out. We're giving them $350,000. Like, we didn't even tell them the actual figure. This is like if at a, at a national level nonprofit or downtown in the managed uh, nonprofit in Portland, you had a chief financial officer, right? And he made a big tax write-off donation and everybody got to hear about it. And then within the books, he fudged numbers around and took money from within the company and spent it, spent it on a big vacation, right? And him and his wife knew about it without the CEO's permission. It's embezzlement. This is a story of embezzlement. Money that was the church's was spent and it was conspired together. It was planned in a cold-hearted, completely justified way. Okay? Now, did anybody make them share their house? Was this a requirement? I think sometimes we read this passage and we get really intimidated about living like this church because we say, well, everybody had everything in common. It's like a bunch of communists, right? And like, they had to just put it all in the pot and then like the disciples who were there to like tell everybody what, you know, what to do, right? This is how we read these kind of things because we're scared, we're threatened by it. We're afraid. But that's not what the text says. Rewind to 32 through 37, read it closely. Peter does not say, so saith the Lord, no one may own property and the church must distribute all your funds. No, it says everyone chipped in, everyone gave generously and held everything in common. They shared and they cared. John Stott, a well-known preacher from last century said, we cannot press these words into meaning that the believers had literally renounced private property in favor of common ownership. I know a bunch of us are like, oh, okay, thank you. In law, they continued to own their goods, yet in heart and mind, they cultivated an attitude so radical that they thought of their possessions as being available to help their needy brothers and sisters. Their radical attitude led to sacrificial action. Note, it says, from time to time as the need arose. This is people aware of their wealth, aware of their blessing that are sharing it generously and freely, as if it's not even theirs. And it's a descriptive passage. Acts is full of descriptive narratives. These are not prescriptive mandates. This is not the Ten Commandments. This is a description, a story, left for us to inspire us, not condemn us. How often do we read stories of these idealistic, wonderful Christians, and we just feel worse about ourselves? We just got to never do that. And we walk away feeling condemned. But this is a message meant to inspire us. 
What about Peter? What about what Peter does to Ananias and Sapphira? Raise some eyebrows. Also feeling a little condemned, right? Who's Peter to like, did he strike him down with lightning? Like, who is this guy? What is this? I thought good, God was a good, loving God. What's going on here? And I will get to that. But what I want to talk about first is that fundamentally, this story is a cautionary tale. Okay? And it's a story about the, the sin, what sin and the devil and dissatisfaction and anxiety do to our souls. What sin and the devil and dissatisfaction and anxiety do to our souls. We all know what a cautionary tale is. Boy cried wolf. It's a cautionary tale, right? Who do you identify with in the boy who cried wolf? Do you identify with the villagers? No, you identify with the boy. The point of the story is don't cry wolf. Like the point of the story is identify with the guy who's wrong in this story, with the kid, put yourself in that place and say, okay, what am I supposed to take away from this story? So in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, if we view it as a cautionary tale for us about how sin brings about this formation in our heart and gets us to conspire and steal and live in fear, we have to put ourselves in Ananias and Sapphira's shoes for a second. We're not better than them. We're here to learn from them. We're sinners. The first thing we see, the thing that's just radically obvious, is that they're liars, right? So let's talk about lying for a second. Now, actually, if you look in the Bible, there are a few biblical descriptive stories where lying is described by the righteous. It is there, okay? It's very rare, and it's against utterly evil people, like Pharaoh and the Hebrew midwives, who, who say one thing and do another, to save babies from being killed in mass genocide, right? But as a general rule, we know that lying is wrong. We know it because it's commandment number nine, right? It's just super obvious. We also know, though, just from human experience, you don't have to be a Christian to know that lying is a bad thing. We know that it's fundamentally an act of pride. It's an act of pride because we decide not to bear to somebody else the true reality. Lying is obeying fear and it's covering shame. And it's also an act of selfish control, which shows us that it's a lack of faith that God will care for us when we follow his ways. But just like David and just like Ananias and Sapphira, who are alike in this way completely, both liars, out of our pride, we think we can get away with it, right? We think we can add a secret onto a secret. We think we're smart enough. We think we're clever enough. We think other people are busy enough and blind enough. But it's destructive because what lying does is it makes us into islands. It takes part of us and it secludes it from the community. Whether it's between us and a spouse, whether it's between us and a friend, whether it's just our secret to hold and we put walls up. And guess where those secrets go? Guess who knows those secrets? Guess who now has some power with us to create fear? The devil. And so the act of confession, actually, in the church is a practice of bringing the darkness to the light. 
It's a practice of putting it out in faith that with other people full of the Spirit that you have trustworth, that you know, that you can make your true self known and render the darkness powerless against you, against the light. Let's, let's imagine the Ananias and Sapphira story with a, a different lens. Let's imagine this commitment that they've made with the property, since a lot of, for a lot of us, that's kind of foreign. First of all, we're never going to be able to do that. Let's think of it about as a relationship like a marriage. You've made a commitment, a covenant. You've pledged yourself to the other person. You're now a mutual property of each other, in a way, right? You're one flesh. But if you take the gifts that you are giving into your marriage and you hoard them for yourself and you withhold those from your spouse and you lie about it to their face, saying you're serving and giving, the marriage will die. It will become a zombie of a marriage. So we have to ask ourselves proverbially, do we have a man or a woman on the side in our relationship with God? Someone or something that we can call up, even if we have to cover it to make us feel better. Ananias and Sapphira have shacked up with the devil. And they're still coming to church. What's that going to do to them? Where, where is their loyalty going to lie? Which trajectory are they going to follow? They're diametrically opposite. It's going to rip them in half. That's what it's going to do. And I think we all understand this, that when Satan begins to fill our heart, as the text says, he goes, Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. What have we heard up until now about this community? It's a community filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we have the first couple within the church that are filled with Satan. I mean, this is built to blow Let's put ourselves in a position of, of thinking about what are some ways that we embezzle against God? What are some ways that we embezzle relationally? Gossiping behind our friend's back and then smiling to their face. Building up contempt for our parents, but taking their gifts and smiling. Knowing we could do our boss's job better than him, but kissing up to him. To wish we had another person's spouse, but then go to bed with ours that evening and lie about how we love them. To pine on Netflix for a relationship we don't have with our husband or wife, but the headphones are on and the lips are sealed and we can just let it rot inside of us. I mean, these are the things, this is intense, but like I'm saying these things because I think we all understand that we've been here, we've done this. We've kept a secret, gross, rotten dream alive in our hearts, and we've kept it because we know it's shameful and we're scared of what other people will think. These are ways that we lie to the Holy Spirit. We begin to live as two people. And what we would call this if we saw it in anyone else is that you're beginning to become lost. Lost to pornography, lost to social media and envy, lost to alcoholism. Guys, I've even hidden things in my cupboards and on my, my deck of my counter because they weren't organic and I had people coming over. I'm living two lives, right? We know that feeling, the shame that we have to cover up. 
Because we're afraid to be who we are. We're afraid. We don't make enough money to afford it. We just don't want it to be a thing. We don't want to be judged because we can't help it. We're doing our best we can. Come on. We all lie to the Spirit. Don't do what you know is wrong to do. That's the first axiom, right? We know that. Just don't do what's wrong to do. But that doesn't really solve the problem, does it? Because the problem's deeper than that. It's, it's motivated so much deeper and it's so much more twisted than that. Where does our shame come from? And how do we cover it up? You know, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve take and eat of the forbidden fruit. But they're convinced that their shame, the reason they're less than, actually is a design from God. Right? And they want to be like him. They don't, they don't want to feel less than, than anybody. And so they take and they eat of the forbidden fruit. Taking and eating is what we do all the time. You've heard the phrase, have your cake and eat it too, right? You can't have your cake and eat it too. I mean, we all hear that, which is kind of a cliche, and we just go, okay, that just means like, this person doesn't believe I can have both these things. That's how it goes through my head a lot of times. Oh, they don't think I can get these both. Oh, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. What, what somebody is saying when they say that, if you ever actually thought about that phrase, when you eat it, it's gone, is what it means. When you have it, you can't eat it or it'll be gone. It's just a statement of reality. It's just a statement. It's just, there's nothing being held over you with that statement. That is just a statement describing reality in like a scientific way. This is how things work. You can have it or you can eat it, but you can't have both. When we hear that, though, because of sin, we so immediately go to that person doesn't want me to have that. Right? So here's what we do with it spiritually. We say, God has come up with some system where in order to have eternal life, I can't have life's pleasures. I'm going to prove him wrong. If it feels good, it must be good. So we go on benders and we go on journeys and we go exploring out into the darkness to find a solution that is literally impossible. God is saying it doesn't fit the nature of reality. And I'm giving you a huge leg up here to just tell you that so you don't have to go figure it out. It doesn't work. Our sinful desires are often built on a contradiction of terms. And so what we end up with is suicidal souls. The counterintuitive answer, the one that requires faith, is to do the opposite with that sin. And instead of covering our shame, reveal our shame. And trust that whatever happens is God's divine will for our life and accept his grace. This is worship. This is what worshiping is. This is real freedom. And it's painful, but it's necessary pain in order for us to be completely whole. But obviously, we don't do this, and the reason is because we think we're justified. We think we're justified by our own setup. We, thought we, we think we got belt, dealt a bad hand. 
And we look around and we go, everyone else got better hands than me. Life is unfair. The only way I'm going to get where they got is to break some rules. Right? And then I won't be ashamed anymore. But David shows us when you break a rule, that's permanent. That shame stain is on you for life. And you will hold that secret and you will know how you got there. And it won't feel good. So before it kills us, or Ananias and Sapphira, or David, sin first makes us blind. That's what the justification is. That's the first step. Sin makes us blind. And the difference between David and Ananias and Sapphira is that David was getting pretty blind. But Nathan came in and intervened. The Spirit of God blessed him by loving him with a really difficult love and broke open his sight and revealed the light to him. And David, because of a life path that had been built on serving the Lord, woke up and relented. He made a choice. He made a choice to take the extreme pain and repent. And Ananias and Sapphira stayed blind and they were unrepentant. Ananias and Sapphira stared down their accuser, locked in a prison of covering their shame. And I'll bet you anything that in their mind it was a catch-22 at that point, if we know what that means. It means that if they were going to reveal their sin to Peter, because he is such a wrathful person, Peter's just a stand-in for God, as far as Ananias and Sapphira are concerned. They're full of the devil, right? He's full of the Holy Spirit. We've got a war. Okay? And what's happening is they're going... Because they've so listened to the voice of the devil, they've said, he is out to get me. How do I get out of this one? Right? So here's what they think when this is happening. I'll bet you anything this is what they're thinking. If I reveal it, I'm going to die. If I don't reveal it, I'm going to die. Like, what do I do? That's where suicide often comes from, isn't it? I mean, those of us who have been on the brink before and have been feeling cornered and have been in those spaces, we go, I'm trapped. I just want out. That, that's the feeling when we get to that spot is life's a catch-22. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. You see the twisted nature of their view of the Almighty God full of compassion and mercy, loyal love. They've lost it. They forgot who he is. And then they've gone from forgetting to total blindness. Let's walk through how this process works. What this text is really about is a spiritual war. So much of Acts is about this spiritual stage. And if we look at these characters and how they're laid out, we can understand what's happening is that there is good guys and bad guys in all these stories. There's the Holy Spirit versus the demons of hell. Right? And that's how all of these stories are working out. But it's all cast in a realistic, historical stage so that we can actually begin to understand how spiritual warfare really works in our real lives. It's brilliant, but we have to read it that way. First of all, okay, why does spiritual warfare even happen? Super quick. Why does the devil have any power at all? Like, that is sometimes where we begin in saying, I just, 
I don't know about God. Like, why is there suffering, right? We start with that question. We have free will. That's why. Because God created beings who could love. And in order to love, you have to have the choice. That's the only way you can love, is to make a choice. I can choose things, good or bad things. But we need to understand that the nature of the reality we live in is not God's mistake, it's our mistake. Until we get that, we won't be humble. As long as we're blaming him, we're completely misunderstanding. Have your cake and eat it too. We're completely, we think he's being lorded over us, but it's the nature of reality. Once we see that God's revealing what is to us and giving us a path to way to health and to life and to freedom, then we see God in the correct way. We see that what he's given us is amazing grace, but the devil doesn't want that, and that's where the warfare comes in. So starting with Genesis 4-3 with Cain, right? Sin is described as a crouching tiger. So we have this crouching tiger of sin in our life, and it shows up in three ways. Some of us are familiar with these, right? The world, flesh, anybody? The devil. The, devil. the world, the flesh, and the devil, okay? The devil's at the bottom. That's how I look at this. Then you get up to the world, and then you get up inside, right in your skin, right? It's all one pathway. It's all interconnected. But this is how sin works. It comes through these three avenues. In the flesh, it comes in personal temptation. In the world, it comes in culture. Forces that are seeking your attention as fuel for their engines. Okay? That's how our phones work. Your attention is fuel for their engine. H.G. Wells, science fiction writer from the 19th century, said the problem with so many people is that the voice of their neighbors sound louder in their ears than the voice of God. Nailed it. And we know that the devil's very nature is a spiritual selfishness that denies that God is good and that good is God's to give. If the devil can't run the party, he'll wreck the party, right? So, where does sin start? It starts with dissatisfaction. This is where all sin starts. Sin does not start with the action of sin. Sin does not even start with temptation. Sin starts with dissatisfaction. It's revolutionary for me to think about sin this way. Absolutely revolutionary. It's like somebody gave me glasses and I could really see the mental games going on in my head. John, you're getting dissatisfied. John, you're complaining. John, when you open your mouth, just garbage comes out because you're not happy. Sin begins, what, what does Cain's sin begin with? Abel offers a sacrifice, Cain offers a sacrifice, Abel's is taken and Cain's doesn't seem to satisfy. Shame, dissatisfaction. Who is this God? That's how it starts. David, how does his sin with Bathsheba start? David's got like multiple wives at this point. David's got no problems. But he looks out the window and he goes, this is all my kingdom. Why don't I have Uriah's wife? Uriah has a more beautiful wife than me, and he's my general. 
See? Dissatisfaction is how it starts. That's how the devil begins to reel us in. And then he tempts us to disobey God out of dissatisfaction. See, what the serpent did in the garden first is he made Adam and Eve dissatisfied. And then he got them to sin. Then he tempted them. Then the hook was set and he could reel them in with the temptation. And then he gets them to sin. And once the sin's done, man, the ball is rolling pretty fast at that point. The devil can almost just kind of back off. Because once we sin, then we feel shame, and then we get afraid. Another way to see Ananias and Sapphira's death is that they were afraid to death. So afraid they died. That, that's another way to look at this story. The temptation goes to sin. The sin results in shame. The shame motivates fear. And man, the devil works with our fear. Man, he makes us scared. Sometimes we're just so scared we don't even feel like ourselves. People look at us and they go, Who, what's going on? You're just an anxious mess. Totally disintegrated. You're not yourself. But this fear gets us and it makes us feel, the shame makes us feel like we're worthless. If anyone knew us, they would like us. And then we act out of a scarcity mindset. We act out of the, the idea that there's not enough in the world for everybody. And rather than revealing our sin in faith, that God will redeem us and forgive us, which he's promised to do, but it requires that leap of faith. Rather than do that, we cover it up and we go rogue. We fight it with control and pride and duplicity. And that's the fourth place then that the devil takes us. We start to sin, we feel shame, we become afraid, and what we're afraid of is this, absolute condemnation. It's our number one fear, that we will not be good enough in some like permanent, complete, eternal way, that we will not measure up. Once we've gotten to the point where we truly believe that about ourselves deep down, and we believe that about the world around us, and we believe that's just the nature of reality, which by the way, you only have to read the news to get that just completely fed to you. We are a condemnation society. So if you believe what the world and culture will tell you, if the sound of your neighbor is louder to your soul than God, you will believe that condemnation is the way of the world. And you would be right, it is the way of the world. But it's not God's way. And so here's what actually happens. We become afraid to death of the cross. We're afraid to death of the cross, you guys, when we get into this space. Okay? We think it's a trick. That God will give, we give generously, share all things in common, and then joke will be on me and I'll suffer for it. Everyone else will get away good on it. I'll give to all these other people who didn't deserve it. They'll take the gifts and they'll run with it and I'll be left with nothing. See? We're like Golem with the ring in Lord of the Rings, right? You won't let anybody touch it. It's his. And he believes everything's a trick. And he doesn't want to give his power up to anyone else. 
Because if he gives it up, guess what happens? He becomes naked and known. Because what does the ring do in that story in Lord of the Rings? It makes you invisible. So if you give it up, you become known, you become seeable, your power is gone. So Peter gives Sapphira a chance to take the ring off. He says, I know you're wearing it. I know you're right there. You think you're invisible. You're not. Can you take it off? And Sapphira goes, if I do, it's all over. What do I do? I don't know what to do. I can't do anything. Ah, you know, it's like an echo chamber. And honestly, you guys, I think that's what hell is. Mm-hmm. Hell is this absolute echo chamber of complete chaos and disorder. A sense of completely being trapped. Because you've so convinced yourself of the lie. He says, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Who told you such a thing, is what he's saying. Who said this? The church is full of spirit, full of people. Who have you been listening to? The devil tells us to do this stuff, you guys, through bodily temptations, through the cultural narrative, and through his own insidious influence in life. And you know what it is when we act out of fear of condemnation? I'm saying this particularly to people it's gonna resonate with. I'm thinking a bunch of guys in the room because we resonate with this. It's cowardly. Oh, when a guy hears that something's cowardly. When a guy is called a coward, isn't that like the worst possible thing you could be called? It just raises everybody's hackles. We don't want to be a coward. I can't speak for you ladies. Maybe it's the same way, maybe not. But for guys, man, I am not a coward. A fear of condemnation, though, is cowardly. Because it convinces us there's no way out. So we sin more to get out of it. It forces us in on ourselves when we're cowards, right? We're always thinking, what will it cost me? What will happen to me, right? Think about it, what's a coward do in a hard situation, a violent situation? Things are, their family's in danger and there's threats. The coward is concerned with their own life rather than the people they're supposed to protect. The coward has a lack of faith and obeys fear. Like if if somebody sits back in safety to protect other people, you don't call them a coward, right? Because they're protecting other people. They're using their life to protect other people. You would call them wise. But if somebody sits back to protect themselves while other people die because they are worried about what will happen to them, that's a coward, right? So Ananias and Sapphira are cowards. David was a coward. So Sapphira is implicated because she's more loyal to herself and her flesh and her anxiety and Satan himself than to the Spirit of God and the promises of God and the promises of deliverance for her life. And so now we get to this kind of wrathful scenario, trying to understand what's going on. 
And if you think about this story, understanding that Ananias and Sapphira are not people with inconsistent faith. David had inconsistent faith. That David was repentant. Ananias and Sapphira are infiltrating. They've completely lost the plot. They are now completely agents of sin. They are pitted themselves against the forces of good because they have decided that good is bad. And once you've decided good is bad, it's really hard to convince you otherwise. We know this, okay? Once people have taken a narrative of all the good things being bad things, try convincing them out of it. We've lived this for the last year and a half, okay? That's what sin does. If I told, just this, this is how I'll paint this, and then if you want more questions afterwards, please come talk to me. This is a hard passage, okay? If a train is coming at 60 mile an hour down a railroad track, okay? It's not stopping. You know it's coming at 60 mile an hour, you know it's about to come and hit, and you choose to step out right before the train comes by. Is it the train's fault or your fault? Anybody, just anyone. Is it the train's fault or your fault? It's, it's your fault, of course. Come on. You can't blame a train driver that you were told it was coming and you stepped out and it hit you. We call that suicide. That's what we call that. So I'm, I'm, I'm maybe I'm beating a dead horse a little bit for you guys, but like what I'm trying to articulate here is you can die at any moment. The text actually doesn't even say that they were killed by the spirit. It certainly seems that way. But maybe they were just afraid to death. Maybe they had a sudden heart attack. We can die in our sleep tonight. Right? Like, now is the moment. The moment is now. As a church, I think sometimes we need to hear that. Maybe, maybe that's one of my hobby horses for you guys. I don't know. But, like, sometimes we think, man, the grace abounds. It's all great. And we start to lose the plot. And we start to lose the timelines. And we start to lose the urgency. And we start to lose the gravity. I'm going to tell a couple stories and then we'll wrap up. The, the parable of the talents. How does the story go? The creator. I'm going, to, I'm going to use a little different language here. But you'll follow the parable. The creator entrusted us with this life. Okay? This earth. This family. These kids. This job. This church. This friendship. Okay. Some of people he entrusted with five talents. Some people he entrusted with two talents. Some people he entrusted with one, right? You look around, we all know the people that have five, right? We, we all think we're the person that has one. That's why he tells the story this way, right? And then what happens at the end of the story? He tells the people that live out of faith the thing we most deeply want to hear. The thing that you, if you ask yourself what you most deeply want to hear from somebody with authority over you, well done, good and faithful servant. Mm -hmm. We just are dying for affirmation. It's the deepest yearning in our heart. And he says, you have trusted in faith and you will enter into the joy of your master. That's true reality when we live in faith. But what happens to the guy with one talent? He goes and he buries it, right? covers it up. He's dissatisfied that he got one and everyone else got more. Feels shame. He hides it, covers it up, right? It's fine. 
And then he goes, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. When he comes back, right? He just gives him the one. But I don't think he just hands it over. Here's your, here's your one. <sighs> yeah, okay. Here's your one back. Here's your talent. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Seeding things where you did not sow, reaping things where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. If we read this text and we are convinced that there must be something wrong with Luke or Acts or the New Testament because the Spirit would never, ever judge somebody. We don't understand God. Master, I knew you to be a hard man. Because that's what we're thinking. We think, God must be evil. Man, I'm constantly searching the Bible to figure out where God has messed up and he's actually a bad guy. Because deep down somewhere, I think that he's out to get me. That's what this guy's believed. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, repeating where you did not, or sorry, sowing, gathering where you had no seed. So I was afraid and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And the creator God replies, that if you had really thought me harsh, if you had really thought that you weren't enough, you still could have invested it in the bank. And it would have honored me. But you dishonored me by holding me in contempt. That's what the, read the parable. Go home and read it today. That's what it says. He goes, you actually mistrust me. You mistrust how I judge. You don't think I'm going to get it right. But my heart is for you and for this world. And then he says, it's because you have not. And what he means there is because you have no faith and no love for me that I've given you what you wanted. You didn't want to be with me anyways. I'm a hard taskmaster. So go. So this cautionary tale is about making secret insurance plans. Secret insurance plans. Well, I've got the one town, it's buried back there. If things go really bad, I can dig it up and get out of town. But the story tells us that keeping these secret insurance plans is a lonely and fruitless pursuit. It's a never ending pyramid scheme that only gives more and more power to the devil. Okay. And what do we know about the guy that takes one town? He's a coward. You can read that story and you go, what a coward. The guy didn't even take any risks, right? He was given the money to begin with. It wasn't even his. He, he thought that if he lost it all, that the master would be mad at him. Don't we think that with our life? If I blow it and I die penniless, just like my parents, God is going to be shamed. Right? We, we, we put the image that we hold often of our parents on God and the fears that we have of our parents on God. But we need to understand he is the perfect father. The Israelites, right? They, they, in Numbers 13, 14, they send some spies out to the promised land. What do they find? 
No, I mean, it's amazing. Except there's giants. It's incredible. Except we're definitely going to die. Right? But what does God say? I will be with you. No, go. It's the promised land for you. I will be with you. Don't worry about the giants. And what happens when those who spread the discontentment and create a culture of dissatisfaction, what happens? God says, everybody who knows my deliverance from Egypt and literally experienced crossing the Red Sea and the 10 plagues, who believed these guys? I'm just not letting you in until that whole generation dies. Whoa! Guys, we have a crazy, incredible God. How wise and smart, and yet how scary. Mm. Right? How real. It doesn't seem like a fairy tale anymore in an unbelievable way. It seems true. It seems good. It's a guy I want to follow. It's a guy who gets it. So I'm not railing here against insurance. I'm not railing against your car insurance. I'm not railing against your home insurance. That's the people that sit back and spend to protect. That's wisdom, right? But the problem is, is that we are seeking to live by an insurance mindset that seeks assurance from the world and the flesh and the devil that can only come from Jesus. We're looking for secret insurance instead of the blessed assurance. Okay? And it's cheap, it's little, and it doesn't work. But the real insurance plan does work. The blessed assurance works. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God put, God put eternity into man's heart. God put eternity into our heart. All of our longings, all, us, all of our dissatisfaction come when we take that vision and that sense and that longing for eternity and we remove God's promise from it and we try and get there on our own. That's what all of society is on the mission to do. Everyone in our heart is on the mission for eternal life. We secretly long for the one thing we literally can't have apart from Christ. It's literally a fantasy. It's impossible. Not because he's bad, because it's literally impossible. The only way to eternal life is through Jesus Christ. So our primary dissatisfaction actually is with our limits. We're primarily dissatisfied by who we were created to be, limited people. <laughs> and we hate it. God says, you're not when you have me. You can live with me forever. Josh White at Dora Hope was preaching this sermon. He says, but we cloak that longing for eternity with other things. We cloak it with other things. Because it's too painful to go through the cross. It takes too much trust, too much pain. But the cross never purports not to be painful. But it does tell you that your pain will be temporary. And its goal is to redeem us into eternal peace with ourselves, which is what we desire, first of all, just being able to live with ourselves, with ourselves, with God, in a forever love, and with everyone he redeems. And if we travel through it, the peace that we thought will be impossible does come. That's God's promise for us. So today, as we worship, just remember Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is no condemnation 
in Christ Jesus. And then continue to string that out for your life. Look at a verse like Romans 12, 1 through 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. See reality as it is, not the fantasy that the world is feeding you. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good and pleasing and perfect will. And you know what, you guys? It won't be so painful. Let's pray. God, thank you for this community. I thank you for the blessing of this church. I thank you that you have given us all souls that are listening and receiving. God, I know that my voice is not the perfect will of your spirit, but God, I pray that in hearing these words, that you would make some things click for us, that you would break us open of the shell that we're in and repair us. God, I pray as we worship that we would do so just fully open and released to you knowing your goodness and your mercy and your wishes for us that we would prosper with you.